You're listening to Artemis Projects podcast. This one is with Sydney-based artist Victoria Hempstead, whose poetic installations and sculptural pieces explore properties and limitations of materials, the interplay between solidity and impermanence, and the relationship between the body and the landscape. Victoria's most recent body of work is a response to the aftermath of 2019-2020 Australian bushfires and addresses the potential of hope in the face of trauma. In this podcast, we therefore consider how might the displays of decay encourage more responsible and compassionate futures. We also speak about Victoria's ongoing fascination with metal, rust and ephemerality. We speak about intuition, voice memos and dream diaries. And contemplate the usefulness of mistakes, the importance of playfulness and suspension of judgment. All this and more in the next 50 minutes of Artemis Projects podcast with Victoria Hempstead. Your primary material that you work with is metal. I'm curious how you came to it and what about it fascinates you. Yeah, it's, it's something I've actually been reflecting on quite a lot recently because I've realized that I've come full circle to what I was really interested in at the beginning of when I started my university degree in the first first year there. I got into art school because of my drawing capabilities. I'm quite a good draftsman. I can draw really well. And I was doing lots of portraits of people, and that's how I got into art school. And so ending up in the printmaking department, we were doing lots of lithography. We were learning how to etch. So it was all based in these flat surfaces, but I was very much drawn to the metal etching more so than carving into wood and was doing just lots of different etchings, experimenting as you do when you start your art degree. When it came to the point of printing, I didn't like printing the plates on paper. I actually just liked exhibiting the plates as they were and loving the imperfections of the scratches on the plate and then rubbing the inks into the plate to kind of give you that illusion of the shadow. In the first exhibition I ever did, I exhibited the the print plates rather than the paper, and I completely forgot about that until moving into this house recently in May and unpacking some of my older work, and these plates were in, in these boxes that I hadn't touched in a really long time, and I made the realization of, well, I think the fascination with metal has been there for a really long time. What I love is that it's really temperamental. It's a material that pushes back. Generally, when you're working with with painting, you're very much in control of what's being output. So you choose whatever you're going to convey and then you paint that. And with metal, it's this two-part relationship. There are limitations within the material of what you can do. And I like pushing up against that. And a lot of my practice is about corroding the metal, allowing it to decay, making the metal actually rust. By pushing the boundary of where the stable point is within the metal, it then talks back to me. And I really enjoy that. I enjoy the gesture being a shared act between the material and myself. I just enjoyed the random occurrence of what it would be in that, even though I'd set the situation up, it was completely out of my control what the final piece was. In my entire practice, I love polarities. I like looking at extremes, but not because 
I want to look at the black and white of a situation. I kind of want to see everything that's in between and explore the gray area. And by choosing two things that sit at opposite ends of each other, they do have a meeting point. And then where is that? And so metal in me kind of feels like that. Yeah. And when do you know when the time to finish is, to stop in that process and to exhibit the work? How does that work? I just go by feel and intuition. A lot of my practice is quite structured. I've got a very specific methodology that I stick to when I'm making the metal pieces. When it then comes to those elements of when you know an artwork is deemed done, it's just purely on an emotional sphere of where I feel like it's now reached the point where I can encapsulate it. But in saying that, so with the work that I make, I expose the steel to water and salt and that corrodes the surface over a period of time and then like you said when do you choose the finishing point I then choose it and then I set it in resin and I put a coat of resin over the top but it still continues to age beyond that point so even though I've selected this point of where I aesthetically love it it's still deciding to continue on that path and it will change so I suppose I don't get to pick the end point. It kind of picks it itself and it will, until the work doesn't exist anymore, it will then continue to change. And that's also really important in my practice of the artwork being a reminder. There isn't really anything within our control and that's where the beauty in objects really lies. In all the pieces that I've made, it always harps back to that idea of ephemerality and the temporality and that being really important and understanding that and appreciating it, respecting it. Yeah. yeah, I was wondering if intuition plays a role in your work and now you spoke about that. How do you nurture that state, that intuitive state of being? Are there some kind of daily rituals or practices that you practice in order for mm. that space within you to flourish? And what are the things that obstruct it? Um, I'd say I'd say up until probably a year ago, it wasn't something I was examining enough. It was something where I would do it and I wouldn't really think too much about the emotional aspect of the work. But then I become really attentive to having a healthy meditation practice and doing breath work routines every morning. And so creating these rituals within my own life and putting time aside in the morning and throughout the day really for myself has found its way then into the practice of me having these small realizations and epiphanies of going, ah, oh, so if I kind of nurture that, then this other part becomes enriched. Entrusting in yourself and the more that you do it, the intuition just begins to become stronger and stronger and stronger. Sure. Yeah. I was wanting to talk to you about maybe other working methodologies that you have, such as the way that you map your thoughts mm. or you document a development of a certain idea, whether you buy a notepad, whether you write, whether you read something or listen to music. What is that process like for you? Mm. I think I used to be really be focused on fitting my art practice into an art theory of you know it's it relates back to this theorist and philosophy and it you know, speaks to this art canon and um, I just became really disenchanted by that and it felt just so forced at times that you would kind of seek these theories which would then explain what you were thinking about rather than going to your thought process and that being the origin of where the work came from and so I started or I read a lot of books which are not related to art so that kind of talk to different ways of approaching life or will look at navigation or nutritional health in the body and while that doesn't necessarily have a direct connection to art I find it's actually the most enriching for my practice. I've been reading this fantastic book called Wayfinding. The author speaks about how navigation, memory, and the idea of place, the triangulation of those three things is who we are and how we find our belonging. 
and with the GPS and Google Maps and all these different things, we've become really disconnected from our idea of place and the body's connection to space. And therefore, we have this deep yearning that we, I think we're seeing universally to not understanding who we are. And so that is something that I've been exploring and I think that's finding its way into my practice a lot, those mm-hmm. thoughts. Yeah. yeah, I've heard you speak about necessity or importance of slowing down. You said that slowing down is the foundation for strong practice. Yeah, I believe so, yeah. This discovery of slowing down has allowed me to really think about everything I do with purpose and why I'm doing it. It's a difficult balance because there's one part intuition and then there's another part of like thinking about it and reflecting. But constantly having that inner dialogue, I think, is really important. And in the current climate that we live in, we no longer value slowing down. We no longer value not knowing something and then taking the time to make that discovery within ourselves. And I think the more I kind of delve into it, the more that feels like a really true part of what I'm curious about yeah it strikes me as if it requires a certain amount of confidence to be able to trust in that process and that it's fine if you're in a bit of in-between space in your practice has your confidence changed over time and what affected yeah, that change I've not been very confident in my practice until recently I went to art school, did my master's and then came out and had a practice, but it wasn't a very strong one and I felt really disconnected from it. And I actually stepped away entirely from art for four to five years and decided that it wasn't for me and that I wasn't, you know, quote unquote, a real artist because I didn't look and act and practice in the same way that I saw other people do it. And so I just felt that There wasn't that same belonging there for me. And only in having, you know, a crisis in my life did I then find my way back to making work. And that was two years ago now. And um, I got to this point where I was mentally really unwell, deeply depressed, and um, had had quit the job that I had and had also... um, my partner and I had run, was running a business at the time. We'd shut that down. And so I didn't have anything to do. And I so just for two months, I just decided that I wouldn't do anything and I would just stay at home. <laughs> and in one way, it was like terrible. But in another way, it made me then in boredom do the things that I should have been doing all along. So in sitting with yourself, it's really interesting what you then get drawn to. And what I got drawn to is making food cooking a lot, looking into my nutrition, starting meditation practice, doing breath work, as I've mentioned before, and then also I just started to make artwork again. Mm. And when I think about confidence, I had the realisation at that minute or in that moment in time that this is just what I needed to do for me to be healthy. And if that wasn't connected with other people's idea of success or, you know... (sighs) having a commercial gallery represent you or having X amount of shows or hitting all these make-believe targets that everyone has, then that's okay. And I made this pact with myself that I would just do it true to myself and whether or not that then worked out for other people in their boxes didn't really matter because I'd gone and done all the other things, hated it, (laughs) and then had returned to art. And so I just... I think the confidence came from, well, the confidence that I now have is in knowing that this comes from a really honest, transparent place within me and hopefully that connects with other people, but at the end of the day, it makes me really happy. And while that sounds really corny, I think it, you know, it allows me to sleep at night and be a really happy person. Yeah. Yeah. And happier we are individually we have capacity to make others happy. I think it's so important Mm. to find the thing that makes you happy. It sounds like a selfish act. People think of it maybe as a selfish thing, but it's actually almost an altruism. And I love how you spoke about, you know, first you started with self-care, your own nutrition, your own body, and that extended in what you have to offer Mm -hmm. 
and that offering is the end point. How yes. it's received is not really. It's not really my responsibility at the end of the day, you know. And that was something else that I, uh, in in doing the work on myself and trying to be the better person, I started reading a lot about you know feelings and different emotions that come up. And at the end of the day, you can only be really responsible for your own, and you can't take on the weight of other people's emotions. And once that kind of clicked into place for me, while I don't. It's not perfect. Obviously, I care about what other people think at times. It's helped me make better work and just be happier in my day-to-day. And I think with the show that I have done recently, it was the first kind of body of work that really I approached from this framework rather than from how I was doing work before. And the response that I've gotten from it is that people, they, without me even explaining it, they get those sensations immediately and I think that's really special. So mm. it's really lucky to have had that. Yeah, there is an energy that we put into things that are yeah. then received. Since you mentioned responsibility, you use that word, I was wanting to ask you whether you feel that art has a social function and whether art has a social responsibility or is it free from that completely? I think it's a little bit of both. I was listening to a podcast and um, this person was inter- interviewing Amanda Palmer and they were talking about what function does art have? And she said something which I constantly kind of now uh, think back to and she goes, you know, art was a form of communication relaying stories of survival of cultural history within our tribes to one another it didn't have this monetary function it's only later on that we've kind of attached that to it and so i think that definitely has a community element to it and once that goes up becomes something really different and for me I'm not really interested in that very much. I think, yes, okay, it exists, but for me that's not what art is. I think the the richer um, bodies of work come from collaboration or a reflection upon community, a reflection upon our society from a universal point of view. Mm. What about beauty? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think beauty, yeah. I don't know. Beauty is a hard one. I... I love, I find things that are beautiful which are almost gone. Things that are decaying and you kind of catch it at the last minute or, uh, you know, we have a very societal fear of death but being with someone through their transition point into this other state is a really special experience and so I think that that's also really beautiful, but I understand that other people probably wouldn't say that that's <laughs> uh, not immediately the first thing they think of when they think of beauty. But um, yeah, I don't know. I haven't figured that one out yet. And I think yeah, I, I find traditional paintings from the Renaissance beautiful, but then, yeah, like I said, also things that are in this state of transition and decay, I find that also is really stunning. And that's why I ask you that question, because with charcoal pieces that you have currently exhibiting. Mm. They are these remnants of fires, bushfires yeah. that uh, happened to Australia recently. And it's obviously something painful, mm. in that way ugly, and you transform it into something that has a new life and it's beautiful. And I believe that... I forgot which artist, but somebody, somebody said that beauties and hope mm, I love that that's great yeah well I th- the the charcoal pieces are they're a pair or I'll just physically describe them they're a pair of tree branches and they look very limb like which I collected from the fires and the entire exhibition is about the aftermath of the 2019-2020 fires And one of the first things I saw when I came to these different sites was the magnitude of how bad it was and the scale at which it just decimated everything. And it's 
incomprehensible. It's why I wanted to see it, to not kind of empathise through a television screen, but to really understand what we were dealing with. And so the, the branches were something that I began to collect along with ash and a few other things. And while I was in this landscape, visually what it looked like was the ash was about a foot high and it was a very delicate white grey, very similar to snow, and it blanketed everything. And the sky was a very similar tone, so you had this visual effect of one melting into the other, and you couldn't differentiate the vertical from the horizontal. And then in the middle you had these black totems of these tree trunks just standing there, and they were floating visually in the abyss of what had happened. And so I wanted to convey it was a thing of beauty and then also a thing of horror of seeing that and then the other part of the sculpture is that Quite often when I was looking at a tree, two of the limbs would be leaning into each other as if they were comforting or protecting one another from the fire. Similar to friends or family members kind of embracing or two dancers dancing around each other. And so that familiarity of human fragility really began to become visible for me in the landscape. And so the, the pieces, the sculptures float the two branches in mid-air and they're leaning into each other and the works are called huddles to talk to that fragility of that moment which sits between an object still existing but just barely it's like being held together by by just a few strands of charcoal and that any moment it could kind of fall apart and crumble it was important for me to not coat so the the branches aren't coated they are in their natural state I have coated them in a very thin layer of polyurethane just to kind of make sure the charcoal isn't going into the air and when you brush past it, you know, it doesn't come off on you. But aside from that, they're in their natural state. And I wanted that to stay that way rather than, you know, casting them or covering them in some form because I didn't want to romanticize what had happened. I didn't want to beautify it in a way that made it easier to digest. I think they sit there as a reminder of how bad it can get. Yes, it's a bit dark, but I also think that it then, like you said, brings out this idea of hope that it won't be as bad the next time, that we will do more to do better. And hopefully the fires in subsequent times won't be as horrible. Yeah. All that you're saying makes me think of this quote from Kathleen Mary Higgins and it's from her essay called Whatever Happened to Beauty, a response to Danto and she writes that beauty typically urges renewed love of life. Beauty provides the comforting background against which one can think the uncomfortable. Beauty assures us that something real is lovable. With that awareness we are capable of the courage face what is not yeah I, I really love that and I think um, trauma has this interesting or this kind of inevitable capability of making you see what's important and seeing seeing the beauty and again those polarities uh, can't live without each other mm. and in picturing or displaying something that focuses on death or decay or a transition point, I think emotionally it then brings out the opposite in humans. Yeah, a couple of people recently spoke about how pessimism and optimism always come hand in hand and now I'm thinking that's related to what you're saying. And that makes me think about the time that we live in now, which is time of pandemic. Mm anyone in the future listening, uh, <laughs> COVID, uh, COVID times, times that are extremely traumatic. I feel that maybe we are not even aware of how traumatic they are because we leave them. ongoing effect yeah. for many years to come, yes. But let's focus on positive, right? Let's 
in the same way as you're speaking about these pieces and how it brought out the hope or you know positive thinking from something horrific what mm. did this time of covid bring up for you that is hopeful mm. great question um i think it gave me more space to kind of continue to digest aspects of my life that I still haven't given probably enough time to dealing with you know the ups and downs of your life I think it's a continuation process and I as many people kind of when you deal with something you're like okay I'm beyond it that's fantastic and then you kind of think that you don't really need to revisit that ever again and I think what COVID taught me was that you know you do and it's really important that you make the space to tap back into those other parts of yourself that are imperfect and not in search to make them perfect or to uh, clean it up in a way but just to remain in touch with all different parts of yourself and again going back to that slowness and once we move past this point I really hope I don't forget about that and that we don't go back to the previous norm of what was because I think we've had this opportunity to be forced into something which we thought wasn't possible in our lifetime of, you know, working from home or it's one of those things that companies, if you're feeling unwell, they don't tell you anymore to just get over it and come in anyway. They actually go, no, 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 stay at home, take care of yourself, make sure you're all right. Do you have the family support? You know, it's all these questions which are should be given, should be given, but aren't um, or weren't for many many years and so for me the hope is that I firstly remember that in myself to do that and then also to see that it also remains within the wider society Mm. yeah the prospect of caring for each other has increased the need to exercise care and I feel like you spoke a bit before about this concept of spatial awareness I feel that might have increased as well because suddenly we need to be aware of giving each other space, Mm -hmm. which I find beautiful. That's one of my favorite things that emerged from this is just this almost courtesy in in a really lovely way of Mm. knowing how much space we need. And I feel that space is always necessary, like not cramping on top of each other, not breathing on top of each other, not touching each other if we don't feel like being touched, which is super important. Mm. Yeah. Touch is one of those things that we intrinsically need, but at a time that we choose to have it. And again, it's then giving consideration to the other. It's listening more, acting less. And I I think that's been amazing yeah, in yeah. this time. Mm. One thing with slowing down and finding time to rest, there is one concern there that emerges for me always is how to stop yourself from falling into lethargy because it's a fine line between having a structure, you know, having your routine and then also having that spontaneity and well now I'm kind of wanting to answer with that intuition I guess is that thing that because I'm questioning with myself, when is the moment when I really need rest? And when is the moment when I'm falling into lethargy? Being and a bit indulgent, to... yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I kind of function in spurts. So I am like super high energy for X amount of time, especially if it's around a project or a certain piece of work. And I'll, you know, in the lead up to the exhibition, I was going seven days a week and I was the last five weeks in the lead up I was working on it every day and then when it was installed I kind of stood back from it and then realized how exhausted I was and how um, drained and how much I needed to recharge and but now that I've kind of moved past this point I think it's a good example of kind of when comes the point of where you then need to get out of the routine of kind of filling your day with nothingnesses 
and find something which is then instigating a new action. Something I really struggle with because of how kind of high and low I can be, that sometimes it, it takes something to jolt me out of the low. So someone, something exterior coming in and being like, do you want to do this? Or I find collaborative work is like one of the best ways to get out of it. So I've been doing a lot of collaborative pieces throughout COVID to try and counteract the lethargy that I do find. And in being at home, you just, you can fill your day with just random things that are so unimportant. (laughs) And you just lose track of days and hours. And so I think with the collaboration, it's like this beautiful point of being able to catch up and share ideas and have a communal space to create. But then it's not all just on you. It's like it's a shared responsibility then. And you keep each other accountable. Yeah, and the people that I'm doing the collaborative pieces with are kind of struggling with the same thing. So it's quite interesting that we've kind of found each other and we're working together. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Are you struggling with it as well? Oh, I think everyone is struggling with that. I think it's a really hard balance to strike and also a hard thing to recognize Mm. when it's one and when it's the other. I haven't met yet a person who does not have an issue with finding that balance mm. yeah I struggle with allowing myself to rest and relax and I realize that it's partly that fear that I just then fall into lethargy and don't know how to get out of it so then I just keep working yeah. in order to prevent that but that's also not healthy so now I'm trying to allow myself time to relax in resting I think in you just explaining that I had the huge realization that I do that as well. <laughs> my partner Andy would be listening to this and be going, oh my God, you do the same thing. Like manic to the point of like having too many things in my day and then not giving myself time enough to rest. And I think, yeah, like I think it comes from the same place of this fear of not doing enough and being too self-indulgent and um, not being able to recognize it. Yeah, but the fear of not doing enough is also so symptomatic in arts Mm. because there is constant need to prove that you are worth something, right? Yes, absolutely. Because how do you how do you even begin to answer a question, what are you doing? What are you working on? There is constantly this guilt that, you mm-hmm. know, if there is no income coming from it or is, if you're not constantly published or exhibiting that, you know... You yeah, there's like this momentum that you have to keep up mm-hmm. um, and that if you were to take a break, if someone asks you, oh, what are you working on? You would answer, oh, I'm not working on anything right now. I'd be kind of like, oh, okay, right. And it wouldn't be negative, but it would be, you know, surprising probably to other people. Yeah, so I think it's systematic of the expectation that you should always be working on the next best version of what you've been up to, which is another thing that I've been looking at is this idea of having periods where of making terrible things <laughs> on purpose. <laughs> so just allowing allowing myself to continue to make things without expectation attached to them. And so I just will do the most Monday collage cut out or just crap writing on a piece of paper just to kind of make sure to kind of keep the value system in check, you know, that it stays fun, it stays intuitive rather than, like you said, this this machine of kind of what are you up to constantly, yeah. Yeah, searching for fun. Yeah. And, and I know that it's so easy to forget why you started doing this in the first place, which mm. was because it was fun. And again, there is guilt associated with doing something that you love, something Mm -hmm. that makes you happy and something that's fun. It's like totally anti-capitalist way of thinking. That's not work, right? If it's fun, it's not work. If you're not suffering, it's not work. Yeah. (laughs) So reclaiming that Mm -hmm. is uh, what lots of artists eventually start struggling with. Is like, I lost fun in this. Yes, I lost playfulness. And it makes me think of thing that Richard Serra said and he said that the art is a suspension of judgment and that it has to be playful. Is Richard Serra in any way influencing your work? Hugely. 
his work, his fascination with metal, the material of metal, obviously, is a very close connection for me. And also um, land artists in general, my source of inspiration, who I kind of look to because of their methodologies and their approach to their practice in connection with land. I find it incredibly inspirational. And you're also, as far as I'm aware, interested in the relationship between body and the landscape. Mm. Uh, and I've seen your post where you also reference Anna Mandietta as one of your influences, her silhouette series. Yes. She's lying, I think, in the Aztec tomb or something. And yeah. the, the foliage is kind the of growing and re- yeah. re- reclaiming her body. Yeah, she, um, her... I've forgotten what the body of work is called, but I think it's called like body imprints in landscape. Silhouette. S- silhouette, yeah. Um, and those pieces were really, and her incorporation of the, the tone of red as kind of this, this blood element in the dirt and, and the sand being iron ore. And so it's also this red, so the dirt is bleeding and she's bleeding and and her work obviously speaks a lot about trauma and terror, the connection and the healing that takes place in her submitting herself or giving herself over to the landscape, I think is incredibly profound, yeah. Mm. And with, with my own work, I mean, I wouldn't consider myself a performance artist, but everything I'm doing kind of does have this performative element to it which was pointed out to me the other day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I don't really like it. I don't like getting in front of the camera or being photographed very much. So for me, it's something I try and stay clear of. But I think in order to truly speak about the body in landscape, there needs to be the act that is shared. And that requires me to then have this performative interaction with the landscape, which I do with the paper pieces that I've been working on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's performative aspect and durational that I'm recognizing in your work. Yeah. One is the material having a duration and performing itself. And then with your paper pieces, it's you who is performing a durational action. Yes. You spoke to me briefly about it taking two days to complete. And Yeah, the big work was, uh, so the big piece is a sheet of paper which measures 1.5 meters by 4 meters. And I cut these repetitive triangles into the work with two strokes. The two strokes are representative of my movement through the landscape. And so the the two strokes are cut where one end joins. And then by folding that stroke back, it creates a triangle. And that vertical presence to the horizontal paper is representative of my presence in the landscape. And the whole body of work is called Beneath the Map. And it's an examination and an exploration into the limitations of Western cartography and these frameworks, which I've been taught to, uh, you know, the lens through which I've been taught to interpret landscape and how limiting that is. Um, and going back to that book I've been reading called Wayfinding, it's opened my eyes up to you know, the it seems so simplistic, but introducing the five senses or, you know, the multiple senses, because I believe we have more than five senses, actually, into how we understand and interpret our surroundings. So the performative element of that became starting, cutting these pieces or cutting the shapes into the paper and repeating that while remembering the different walks that I went on while I was visiting the different sites while the bushfires were happening. I call them memory sketches. So it's utilizing the idea of when you go back to a memory, it's a little bit muddled. So you kind of, you remember, oh, I was walking down this path, but then you came across something, let's say, you know, a specific shaped leaf on the ground and it reminded you of something else. And it transports you then instantly to another memory of, well, that looked really similar to this other location I was at, and then picking up the journey from there and going, well, from there there were, you know, two valleys on either side of me and then cutting those valleys into the paper. And so the piece of paper becomes this memory sketch 
of all the different walks I've done across that six month period rather than being a literal map of one section that I visited. And I think the interesting part about it is that when people view it, they might not instantly know the story behind it, but everyone understands that it's a mapping of something. So people are thinking whether it's bird migration patterns or I think the other one was tidal patterns in the ocean. Someone else saw snow caps on mountains or my favorite was population densities across the world, which I thought was really left of field. I love that. And so I just got fascinated with this idea of remapping how I would interpret landscape and attach value to it. Do you feel that that kind of memory is more connected to the body rather than the head? Uh, Definitely. I think, again, going to the five senses, I think when you remember something, if it's a really deep-seated memory, let's say about your family, you can go instantly to, you know, what colors were happening that day. Was the sun really bright or was it nighttime? You can remember what you smelt like or what the food smelt like. And, you know, it's, it's not just this visual thing or um, literal thing that you have in your memory. It's, it's like this culmination and it's what I meant by it's a bit messy, you know, it's all kind of mashed together. And that's what makes it so special and unique to yourself mm. rather than it being this cookie cutter thing that applies to everybody. There is also Japanese aesthetic in that piece, I feel. Yes, well, I think the my focus on meditation is really coming through on that. My, um, I, I really enjoy doing mundane tasks, like something that's repetitive, that I am I'm, I'm able to lose track of what I'm doing with my body because it's so repetitive and go into a different state. Not that I leave the room or can kind of think about a shopping list or oh, I need to remember to do X, Y, Z. I still have to remain really present because I am doing something with a knife in front of me and I don't want to make the wrong cut because quite often I get to the point where I want to then make the reverse cut. So instead of going in the, in the right direction, I'd want to all of a sudden just turn and go back and go left. And so I do have to remain really present, but I suppose that state's called flow, you know, that everyone's just trying to achieve. So I think that's where the Japanese element comes in of being able to sit with yourself and be present in the moment. Is there a room for failure in your practice or mistakes? I think so. I think the the work in itself will be a failure at some point. I mean, failure by definition means different things. So, but the works, I don't really know how long they're going to last, especially the metal ones. Like I, mathematically, I can think about it from an engineering standpoint. Go, okay, it'll it'll definitely last, you know, our lifetime, if not more, you know, and, and put a, quantified into a number of you know 150 years, but best thing about it is I don't know and I don't have any control over it and eventually the work won't exist and so it needs to be appreciated in this present moment in time and with the paperwork it's not any different you know um, paper is terrible to archive (laughs) it will also disintegrate over time and the piece is so large and difficult to frame so that also kind of works in contradiction to the archive and the museum and and the idea of the white box and preservation. So I think without it being the core of my practice, I think failure is kind of a natural thing I like to build in to Mm. what I'm making. But in a way, it's not failure there. No, no. Because it's allowing for the failure to be part of the process. I suppose it's, it's seeing failure as like a really positive thing rather than having those negative connotations of being less than or, yeah, less than or less value. Yeah, I asked another artist, she's a Swedish artist, Sweden-based, who works also with agency of materials, and I asked her about 
the concept of making a mistake in her work because she works with fragile materials that mm. disintegrate over time. And she said that a lot of work is a search. I try not to have judgmental ideas because sometimes you could have a surprising outcome. Mm. So true. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, the finding the middle and that process was a mistake in the first place. You know, it was kind of, uh, it wasn't a failure, but it wasn't meant to happen as such, or I wasn't meant to have that discovery. It wasn't planned. So I think in leaving room for failure or the accident, the accident to take place, yeah, um, and then not emotionally getting too attached to it, but then being able to remain optimistic and see the positives in it, I think is really important. And like she says, and being able to keep the judgment away from that instance, what can be discovered. Yeah. Is the scale important to you? Well, I struggle to make small artwork. (laughs) I also struggle to make artwork that's light. Oh no, in saying that though, the paperwork, so like my first light artwork <laughs> ever, because generally I make work that I can't even pick up myself. It's generally like a two-person job. But I think scale has this ability to kind of engulf the viewer and it's a sensation that I really enjoy when I meet or come into contact with a piece that just seems to kind of overpower me in some way. I really like that and size does play into it at times but I'm trying to it's something I'm actually working on now is how to continue that sensation but with smaller works how can a small work create an environment that uh, or takes ownership of of more space than it actually occupies yeah to relate to the body I guess because scale does that to us it relates mm. to the body very intensely and then I was also considering how it's really important to experience your works physically Mm. uh, because of that and that again made me think about the time you're in at the moment where so much is going onto Instagram or online on screens but then you're also saying that you're now exploring the ways that smaller pieces can have that visceral effect Mm -hmm. is that because of this transition into screen-based culture no I wouldn't have connected it to that maybe in some sub some like subconscious level perhaps but no I think the challenge is more it's a true challenge for me because I do naturally gravitate to making bigger objects and so in confining myself to a smaller space what other discoveries can be made because I have gotten to this point with the metal work that I I have the recipes, I understand the practice of how I make them. It's now time again to push it. Mm. And where can I go with it from there to take it to its new ideation? And so for me, I think scale. It's a very kind of instant way to change the object entirely. You know, rather than being a flat surface, which it is now, does it become a three-dimensional piece, but it's much smaller? Does it become something which is projected? I really like the aesthetic of using projectors and projecting images onto objects in a room, the different shadows that are created. So that's just something, again, you know, going back to the play, it's something new to play with, and that's really important for me. Mm, Yeah. Like a new obstacle to overcome. Exactly, yeah. A new thing to figure out. You spoke to me a bit about different interpretations that you have received for your work. Mm. Do you find these moments of talking about your practice with others useful or does it take something away from the work when it's spoken about too much? Um. I think up until recently I really struggled to talk about my work um, and I felt that I was never able to, well, and this could just be partially in my mind, <laughs> but I felt that I could never really verbalise the true extent of the ideas that were taking place in my head. And so for me, talking and communication has been a good practice to 
share those more secret elements of my methodologies and my work with others. And again, it allows for that community aspect of someone else, you know, me explaining the work, but then someone else actually having a completely different interpretation of it. And that then gives me a new understanding of my work. So I don't think of it as a negative because I do think there's there's just so much to be gained from sharing it with others. And then in in kind of over-talking about it, I think the greater fear perhaps is staying in one aspect of your practice for too long. And then the side effect of that is then you know it's so back to front that in talking about it, it's just it, there's an emptiness to it. So I think continuing to, to change and adapt in the practice to discover something new is a way of just avoiding that entirely, really. I'm in a really great studio space with seven other artists and we give each other time to talk about our works. And quite often I won't even know or understand what I'm trying to convey in the work. And then I'll, you know, someone will come by with a cup of tea and then we'll start talking and I'll make those realizations in the conversation of going, oh yeah, of course. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's of course what I'm thinking about, but it took that moment of sharing it with someone else mm. to discover it for myself. Yeah. Is there a period in the process of making a body of work that maybe it's too soon to start sharing? Because you speak about receiving other people's interpretation. Mm. So is there a moment where it's maybe just a bit too fragile yet to give it to yeah. the world in that way? Yeah, I think so. I wouldn't necessarily be able to pinpoint what time that is but I think every artist knows when it's still too fragile to share and it still just needs to be more time in the studio or more time spent thinking about it before talking to anyone else because then that outward influence becomes too dominant in what the piece becomes potentially not always but potentially could be then influencing it in a way which steps away from what it is it was trying to say before yeah and you didn't give it enough time to get to that point so yeah again not not rushing through the process too much I think some works come instantly and happen really quickly and then other pieces take a really long time the paperwork the cutting was something that I did the actual cutting pieces was something I did in 2012 and I just did it on one piece of paper and I've had that piece for this whole time, for these eight years. But the the concept of what that was only really connected now. And so I, in my practice, I'd something that I do is that I'll touch on something, but it doesn't necessarily become an object or become a thing or a thought until much later down the track. Yeah, that's why I'm also wondering how useful is it um, to keep a diary of a sort for you jot your ideas yeah in the post that you posted in relation to mandieta you referred to a diary entry yes. so you keep i do diary. do keep diaries yeah i'm i'm a i'm a notebook nutcase so i've generally carried two notebooks on me at <laughs> most times Why and two? it's i think it's for, for lists, so I, I'm a big list writer of just kind of keeping track of my, my memory. My memory is not very good, and so I kind of write things down constantly because I know I'm going to forget them. But then they're very disorganized. I mean, no one else would probably be able to decipher those books, and I've got one lying right here. I'll take memo, voice memos on my phone, and I'll also jot things down on my computer, but I really I don't like it on technology. It doesn't It doesn't actually go anywhere. <laughs> it just stays on a screen and it doesn't go anywhere. So I find that if I put it down in a notebook, it then kind of continues to stay with me at all times. And so I've got a whole stack out in the spare room that I keep and I come across them just when I need it. It's just interesting how sometimes you, you come across something exactly when you need it and I'll flick through it and go, oh, that's right, and then just revisit that. Yeah. Mm. And there is something for me, I have notebooks as well, which I also prefer to typing things onto a computer or even a phone. It's something in the process of 
it's a bodily experience mm. of writing and yeah. touching the pen, the paper. There is, I can't really, I, I can't explain it at all, but there is something deeper there for some reason. The time that you spend with it is longer and there is this tactile element. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I agree. And I think when in writing things down, yeah, like you said, you writing it is slower than typing. So you stay with the idea for a bit longer. And I've always found as well that I, when I write things down, I can en- encapsulate what I'm talking about so much better than I can when I'm speaking. Uh, and I think it's the ability to put it down and have a memory of it and then go back to it and go, was that kind of what I was trying to say or do I scratch through it and then have another go? And I think with keeping a notebook, it's it's one of the things that I am really deeply connected to. Of the, it's, it's a memory of you in this kind of written form. Do you have dream diary? I used to, I don't anymore. No, but I, I should. I should start that again. There's so many new habits that I've been wanting to introduce, but I I haven't quite gotten around with it. I just I'm really struggling in COVID to kind of find the energy because there's so much time to do all these things, I'm almost don't know where to put them in my day. Because you, you kinda of wake up and you can go, Well, I can do it now or I can do it later on in the day and if you I'm currently not working uh, at a job. I'm just practicing my work. And so the, the flexibility of that is like a positive and a negative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, it's at the top of my list of coming back into something that I do. Mm. Yeah. And you do find dreams inspiring for your practice. Sometimes yeah. they inform yeah. your ideas. Yeah, sometimes they are the, the work. They, I wake up and I have had a dream about the work. I made this work with um, the metal pieces and they were counterbalanced off these rocks and it was an installation work that went into in the middle of a room of a group show and it was a dream I had of kind of walking in this twilight uh, landscape and then finding these stones and the stones were even though it was dark they were really warm and they felt like bodies and had these pools of water next to them then I kind of woke up and I wanted to make that into a work and so this artwork ended up being these counter-levered metal plates which were sitting on these dragon stones throughout the room Where would you like to take your practice next? Or is it too soon to ask that question? Uh, no, I think it's uh, it's what I'm, what I'm thinking about a lot right now. So the next thing I'm going to be doing is actually an oil painting. <laughs> and it kind of goes back to that make a crap artwork sort of thing. And even though I, it's not going to necessarily be a crap artwork, it's just breaking the repetitiveness of what I would normally do in introducing something new and I'm not going to do anything with this oil painting it's just going to be uh, something I've been thinking about and planning for a while just to have fun with it and do that and I'm going to give myself probably like a month to just do it and have a great time and then yeah after that begin to continue the exploration into like the smaller pieces I really would like to see if I can take the metalwork back to a three-dimensional form rather than it being a flat surface. I would consider myself firstly a sculptor and so I always kind of enjoy bringing it back to this object piece which is a presence in the room because I feel sometimes with things that hang on walls they feel really static. If there's an object sitting in a room it just it's like another being Mm. in the space. So yeah, I've just having good play with that. Thank 
Thank you for listening to Artemis Projects podcast. For more about our projects, head to artemisprojects.com.au. This podcast was recorded on the Gadigal land of Yora Nation, and we pay our respect to their elders, past, present, and emerging.